Right, friends, well, let's uh, turn back to the portion of God's Word that we read together, uh, Matthew's Gospel and chapter 9, uh, Matthew's Gospel and chapter 9, and uh, reading verses uh, 14 uh, through to 17 again. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth in an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Last year, Anne Wilson, a, a Christian singer, recorded the song, My Jesus. It's a song that she wrote out of the tragic experience of losing her 23-year-old brother. And in the song she sings, Are you past the point of weary? Is your burden weighing heavy? Is it all too much to carry? Let me tell you about my Jesus. Do you feel that empty feeling? Because shame has done all its stealing. Are you desperate for some healing? Let me tell you about my Jesus. He makes a way where there ain't no way. Rises up from an empty grave. Ain't no sinner that he can't save. Let me tell you about my Jesus. His love is strong and his grace is free. The good news is that he can do for you what he's done for me. Let me tell you about my Jesus. And in many ways, that is what Matthew is doing as he writes this gospel, as he writes this narrative of Jesus' life. He is saying to his readers, let me tell you about my Jesus. Today we're continuing our studies in Matthew chapters 8 to 10, and we're focusing on the joy that Jesus has come to bring, the kind of joy that we see at a wedding the kind of joy that nothing and no one can take away from us. And we're going to look then at these verses under two headings, a real problem and then a radical proclamation. First, we have a real problem. Look at verse 14. Here Matthew focuses on the legalism that Jesus was confronted by. The legalism that Jesus was confronted by. We can begin by noting where Jesus has been. He began in his own city of Capernaum. And there he had met a paralyzed man whom he had said, I forgive your sins. I have the authority to forgive your sins. And he had proved his authority to do so by restoring this paralyzed man in body. He had gone on to meet a tax collector named Matthew, whom he had called to follow him. Matthew had got up and followed. And that evening, Jesus had spent time feasting in the house of Matthew with other tax collectors and sinners. And now at the beginning of verse 14, Jesus meets a new group of people. We read, then the disciples of John came to him. This man, John, has already been mentioned in Matthew chapter 3. He, he goes about wearing a, a coat, a garment made of camel hair with a leather belt around his waist. He is dressed as a prophet, as a spokesman for God. He's a man who, who eats locusts and wild honey, practices an ascetic lifestyle. He's a man who 
delivers a very passionate message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is at hand. And this unusual man with his uncompromising message draws, he attracts a crowd to himself. Large crowds come from Jerusalem, from Judea and from all the surrounding Jordan area. And now the disciples of John come to Jesus. A disciple is someone who attaches himself to a particular teacher, a particular leader. We've already seen that Jesus has gathered a number of disciples, a number of followers. And now this man, John, we see, has also gathered a number of followers, a number of disciples who now come to Jesus. And in the second half of verse 14, the disciples of John present Jesus with a question. We read, why do we and the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. Now at this point it's important that we say something about fasting. In the Old Testament fasting, abstaining from food, wasn't so much for dietary reasons. It was a spiritual exercise. It was an expression of intense mourning, great sorrow. And in the law of Moses, the Lord had prescribed that there would be one day each year when all his people were to fast. The day of atonement. It would be a day for the people to acknowledge their own personal sins. But not only their own personal sins, they would also acknowledge the sins of the whole nation. And while they acknowledged their sins and the sins of the nation, they also acknowledged the grace, the forgiveness of God. The the mercy, the steadfast love of God. But by Jesus' day... Many Jews weren't fasting one day a year. They were fasting two days a week. They believed that that displayed their piety, their fervor, their earnestness, their their zeal for God. And they believed that by doing this, they could earn the favor and blessing of God. They believed that by doing this, they could merit the, the smile and the approval of God. And so now we have the disciples of John coming to Jesus with a question about all of this. They're fasting on a regular basis. And the Pharisees, another group of zealous religious people, are also fasting on a regular basis. But the disciples of Jesus aren't fasting. They're feasting with tax collectors and sinners. And and where is Jesus? He's right in the midst of it all. And the disciples of John want to know what this is all about. They want to know what kind of commitment to God Jesus is advocating. They want to know how serious Jesus and his followers are about God. And so they come to Jesus with the question, why do we fast? And why do the Pharisees fast? But your disciples, and by implication you, do not fast. Now friends, as we consider this verse, Matthew is drawing our attention to the danger of legalism. The danger of religious rule keeping. Legalism is looking to anything that we are doing in order to gain the favor of God. I'll say that again. Legalism is looking to anything that we are doing to gain the favor of God. And that is a trap that the disciples of John and the Pharisees had fallen into. There was nothing wrong with fasting, it wasn't a sinful practice. But the disciples of John and the Pharisees had become focused, they had become fixated on their fasting. They had come to believe that that marked them out as being pious, marked them out as being zealous, 
marked them out as being serious about God. They had come to believe that this was the proper and indeed the only way to receive the blessing and favour of God. They had come to view their relationship with God in a very contractual basis, a very legalistic basis, a kind of you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours approach. That if they did something for God, then God would be obligated to do something for them. And there's three things that the words of John's disciples reveal about such legalism. Number one, the words of John's disciples show us that legalism is about outward appearances. The disciples of John and the Pharisees are very concerned about being seen to be doing the right thing. Behaving in the right way. They don't care so much about what's going on on the inside. They care about what's going on on the outside. And at the end of the day, that is what legalism always involves. It's about waiting the right thing. Saying the right thing. Singing the right thing. Doing the right thing. It is all about outward appearances. It's all about religious externals. It's all about how we are being seen. How we are being viewed by other people. Second, the words of John's disciples show us that legalism adds burdens. The Lord had prescribed one day of fasting a year. That was all. And there's the the disciples of John and there's the Pharisees. And they're not fasting one day a year. They're fasting two days a week. 104 days of the year are being spent fasting. And they expected others, such as Jesus' disciples, to follow suit, to do the same. And that is what legalism involves. It, It involves adding burdens to people's lives. It involves adding weights to a person's life. It would be like me saying to to Robert, Robert, this is what you need to wear for church. This is how you need to pray in church. This is how you need to uh, speak to other people in church. It's adding burden after burden after burden. And third, the words of Jesus' disciples, the words of John's disciples show us that legalism isn't simply about outward appearances. It isn't simply about adding burdens. It is also incredibly critical. The disciples of John and the Pharisees were saying that they were mourning over their sin. They were humbling themselves before God as they engaged in all this fasting. And what are they doing? In the very same breath, with the very same mouths that are refraining from food, they are criticizing the disciples of Jesus for not fasting. And again, that's what legalism does. It causes a person to judge and criticize someone who is not measuring up to the standards and the rules that they have set. It involves a person saying, Lord, I thank you that I am not like so-and-so. Lord, I thank you. We'll pick on him again. Uh, Robert, glad I'm not like Robert. Glad I dress better for church than Robert. Glad I pray better than Robert. Glad I sing better than Robert. And you know that's not true. So legalism is all about outward appearances. It's all about criticizing others. It's all about adding weights and burdens to people's lives. So this morning, let's pause for a moment and ask ourselves the question, have I fallen into the trap of legalism? Have I embraced a religion of religious rule keeping? 
Have I begun to look at the things that I am doing in order to gain the favour, the acceptance, the approval of God? Is my way of relating to God purely performance-based? If your relationship with God is purely performance-based, you are slipping down the slope of legalism. So there's the real problem. We move second, though, to a radical proclamation. Look at verses 15 to 17. And here Matthew focuses on the statement that Jesus makes about himself. Verse 15, we hear the point that Jesus makes. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Jesus has just heard what the disciples of John are saying about fasting. And Jesus turns to them and he says, now isn't the appropriate time to fast. Look at the beginning of verse 15. He draws their attention to a wedding. A wedding, as Robert and Merdina know, is a time of joy, a time of celebration, a time of feasting. That is true in our day, but it was also true in Jesus' day. What was very different, though, was the arrival of the bridegroom. Natalie has a phrase, and I'm picking on her because she's not here, but she has a phrase, never hurry a murray. And and I am panicking when I hear that phrase of just how long she's going to keep me waiting at the altar and back. That never hurry a murray. But in Jesus' day, it was the bridegroom who came to the bride's father's house to fetch his betrothed. There was no bridegroom. I bet David's thinking, this is a great idea. There was no waiting around. For the bride to come down the aisle. The bridegroom went to the house to to fetch his betrothed. The bridegroom's arrival was cause for joy, cause for celebration in the local community. It would be completely inappropriate for the community to be fasting, to be mourning in the presence of the bridegroom. This was joy. This was celebration. And Jesus is saying here, now isn't the time for people to be fasting and mourning. The bridegroom is here. Jesus is here. And because Jesus is here, because the bridegroom is here, it's time to celebrate. It's time to rejoice. It's not time to mourn. It's not time to fast. It's time to to get the smiles on. It's time to go forward with a song on their lips. Jesus, however, does continue by telling the disciples of John that there will be an appropriate time to fast. Look again at verse 15. He speaks about the bridegroom being taken away. That verb, take away, means to violently remove. It is Jesus' first prediction in Matthew's gospel that he is going to be arrested. He is going to be put to death. And Jesus says here, now is not the time to fast. But a day is coming when the bridegroom will be taken away. A day is coming when I will be violently removed. And on that day, my guests, my disciples, will have every right and reason to mourn and fast. Verses 16 and 17, we move on to see the pictures that Jesus presents. We read, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth in an old garment. For the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. Jesus begins by using the picture of a new piece of cloth being put on an old piece of cloth. Verse 16. 
in Jesus' day, as in our own day, cloth would shrink in the wash. And so if an old garment was in need of repair, you wouldn't use a a new piece of cloth, an unshrunk piece of cloth to repair it. If that new piece of cloth, that unshrunk piece of cloth was sewn onto the old garment, it would then shrink in the wash. And as it shrunk in the wash, it would tear the whole garment, rendering the garment absolutely useless. And the point that Jesus is making here is very clear. He hasn't come to patch up the old traditions, the old religious rules that the Pharisees and the disciples of John are currently observing. He's not come to do a patch up job. He's not come to do a repair job. And then Jesus uses another picture of new wine and old wineskins. Look at verse 17. In Jesus' day, the skins of animals, such as goats, would be used to store liquids. But over time, these skins would become hard. They would become brittle. And when new wine that was still fermenting was poured into these old skins, that new wine with its fermenting gases would eventually cause the skins to crack and break. And the result would be a double loss. The old skin would be ruined. It would be ripped apart. And at the same time, the new wine would be running into the ground. Again, the point Jesus is making is clear. He's not come to add something new to the religious rules, the religious traditions that the disciples of John and the Pharisees are currently observing. He's come to do something else. Friends, as we consider these verses, Matthew is drawing our attention to who Jesus is. As we read the Old Testament, we frequently see the Lord, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, being described and describing himself as the heavenly bridegroom. In Isaiah 54, we read, Your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. In Jeremiah 2, we read, Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride. In Ezekiel 16, we read, I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord, and you became mine. In Hosea chapter 2, we read, In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. The Old Testament is very clear in saying that the Lord is the heavenly bridegroom. He is the bridegroom of his people. And now we find Jesus referring to himself here in Matthew 9 as the bridegroom. In his commentary, Sean O'Donnell writes that Jesus is making thus far in Matthew the highest Christological claim. Up until now, he's been referred to as the Son of God. Up until now, he has referred to himself as the Son of Man. But here, he calls himself the Bridegroom. He's making himself equal to God. This is Jesus saying to all those gathered, I am the Sovereign One. I am the Great Heavenly Bridegroom. I am the fulfillment of what Isaiah was speaking about, what Jeremiah was speaking about, what Ezekiel was speaking about, what Hosea was speaking about. It is a breathtaking claim. I hope, friends, that you can hear the weight and the significance of what Jesus is saying. Many of us probably grew up hearing that Jesus is fully God. We heard it in our homes. We heard it in the Sunday school. We heard it in the church. But just put yourself for a moment in the shoes of John's disciples. 
Put yourself for a moment in the sandals of John's disciples who are hearing these words coming from the lips of Jesus for the very first time. They've grown up hearing that there is only one God, the God of Israel, the God of Adam and Enoch and Noah, the God of Abram and Isaac and Jacob, the God of Moses and Joshua and David. The God who will not share his glory with another. The God who describes himself and is described as being the heavenly bridegroom. And now they're hearing this wandering preacher, this wandering teacher, this Jesus announcing, I am the heavenly bridegroom. It's a shocking statement. Which must be either received as truth or rejected as blasphemy. And the question that I need to ask, friends, is... Do you believe what Jesus is saying? Do you see Jesus as the heavenly bridegroom? He is not just a teacher. He is not just a healer. He is the heavenly bridegroom. He is the living God. But as we consider these verses, Matthew is also drawing our attention to how we ought to respond, how we ought to react to the presence of of this Jesus, the arrival of the heavenly bridegroom. Jesus is emphasizing to John's disciples here that he's not come to bring in days of fasting. He's come to bring days of feasting. He's come to bring days of joy. In his book, When Jesus Confronts the World, Don Carson writes, what kind of person can say in effect, be happy for I am here. I know of a little girl who, when she was about two and a half, went to visit a home for senior citizens that she and her mother had visited before. Remembering how happy many of these senior folk had been to see her the last time, she burst into the common room, flung wide her arms and cried out, I'm here. The extraordinary self-centeredness of a child is forgiven, but an adult couldn't take the same approach, except perhaps in a slapstick comedy show. Yet here is Jesus adopting such a stance. Here's Jesus, the heavenly bridegroom, the one who has authority to forgive sinners, the one who announces forgiveness to sinners, the one who accepts sinners into fellowship with himself, as we have seen in verses 1 to 13. And now he's saying, I'm here. Be happy. I'm here. Rejoice. He's saying to those who have gathered, I've come to bring real joy, true joy, lasting joy, the joy of friendship with God, the joy of fellowship with God, the joy of intimacy and communion and union with God. He's saying, I've not come to give you rules and regulations in order to gain the salvation of God. I have not come to give you rules and traditions in order to receive the blessing of God. He's saying, I have come to give you the blessing of God. I have come to give you the salvation of God as the great heavenly bridegroom. I'm here. Rejoice. Surely that is cause for joy, friends. Surely that is cause for celebration that Jesus has come as the heavenly bridegroom. And that's the point that I want to close on this morning. T.J. Timms, pastor of Emmanuel Church in Nashville, has said, the predominant tone of a church and a Christian is a wedding celebration. Joy in Jesus So we refuse to mope around in the Christian life. How do we get past that mopey spirit? We hyper-focus on the bridegroom. 
We don't dwell on ourselves thinking, how can I get myself joyful? We centre in on the bridegroom. We centre in on Jesus. Jesus, friends, is the heavenly bridegroom in whom we find true joy, lasting joy, the joy of salvation that nothing and no one can take away from us. In a few moments, we're going to go into our cars and back into our homes, and people are going to be watching us. They'll be watching us. Wouldn't it be wonderful if they looked at us and said, they look like they've heard some good news today. They look like they've heard a gospel today. They look like they've heard a message of salvation today. Wouldn't it be wonderful if they looked at us and said, they look like the freest, now hear me clearly, they look like the freest, not the free churchiest, but the freest and happiest people in Stornoway. Wouldn't it be wonderful if they looked at us and said, I wonder what wedding celebration those high freers have been today. They, they look like the happiest people on the planet. I wish that I had been there. That is our testimony. When we go out that building with joy, not a kind of airy, fairy joy, but the kind of joy that says, I know the heavenly bridegroom. I know the salvation that he has come to bring. And nothing and no one can take my joy from me. Will the world see that in our faces, in our lives today? Let's pray. Oh Lord in heaven, we ask and pray now that as we prepare to leave this place, that we would go away with joy resounding in our hearts. We thank you for Jesus, that he is the heavenly bridegroom, that he has not come to patch up or do a repair job on old traditions and religious rules and rituals, but that he has come to bring in something completely new and radical, the very salvation and blessing of God, that he has come with the authority to forgive, the announcement of forgiveness, and those arms that accept every guilty sinner who comes to him. We pray that this would be joy, a message of joy that reverberates in our minds and in our hearts, and that as the people of Stornoway and the surrounding area see us driving back to our homes, that they would see that there is a joy within us that, that cannot be explained by the world's standards, but that can only be explained by looking to the gospel. So hear us and go before us in the rest of this time that we have together as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.